Sometimes a book title really catches your eye, and this one, Why International Organizations Hate Politics, certainly piqued our interest. The authors Marike Louis and Lucien Mertens questioned the apolitical claim of international organizations. Through current and historical examples and case studies, they systematically analyze the practices and logic of depoliticization, throwing light onto everyday practices in international organizations. Professor Vincent Pouliot at McGill University describes their book as the final nail in the functionalist coffin of a depoliticized global governance. I'm Amy Smith, and you're listening to The Next Page, the podcast of the Library and Archives devoted to advancing the conversation on multilateralism. This is a perspective-changing book, and it was a huge pleasure to have Marike Louis and Lucy Mertens join me for a conversation to explore their work. Enjoy listening. So, hello. Welcome to The Next Page. Thank you for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourselves briefly for our listeners and, and just tell us how you came to write this book that has such a provocative title? Thank you very much for the uh, invitation. Uh, my name is Marie Clouy. I am an associate professor in political science and international relations at Sciences Po uh, Grenoble in France. I have been working for 10 years now on international organization. I made my PhD on the international labor organization and uh, I'm working uh, with Lucille for, uh, I would say, uh, 10 years as well. We, we've known each other for a long time since uh, since we were actually master students and then PhD students. So our interest for that book, and I will probably explain a little bit later, but came from very uh, similar questions that we were confronted with in our very different areas because uh, Lucille is specialized in environment and I'm specialized more in uh, social and economic multilateralism. And Lucille? Thank you very much for having us. It's, it's a pleasure to have this opportunity to present our work. So I'm Lucille Martins. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Lausanne. And uh, my work um, also, like Marik, is uh, focusing on the study of international organizations, uh, mostly in the field of global environmental politics, but also in, on international security. And uh, I've been working on this project on depoliticization for a few years now. And um I'm really glad to have this opportunity to present the book today. So um, the title, tell us more. So um, you said that uh, you talked about the provocative title of, of the book. To be honest, we are not, uh, we're not clearly not the first uh, to have used this expression. Actually, we we borrowed it, so to say, uh, to uh, Colin Hay. Uh, Colin Hay is a political scientist. He wrote a book in 2007 called Why We Hate Politics. And it was already an attempt to um, uh, to theorize uh, that question of depoliticization. And he made distinctions between different kinds of depoliticization the governmental depolitization through delegation practices, the public depolitization through privatization, and also private depolitization uh, through the, the denial of, of political problems. We were very much inspired by, by this title. And for the subtitle, which is depoliticizing the word, clearly it's also uh, a reference to the famous book, at least in the field of international organization, from uh, Michael Barnett and Martha Finmore, Rules for the Word, uh, 2004. And it's also a way for us to, um, to, to show the link between two literatures, uh, literature in political science, uh, but also the literature on international organization, which not always dialogue uh, with each other. So uh, this is this is the reason for uh, for the title. So the book, you know, tell us a bit more about how it fits into the existing literature and what makes it relevant for advancing our understanding of international organizations. 
Well, the, the books is really at the crossroads of different uh, literatures. The first one is broad literature on, on what is called functionalism, which is, of course, a, a key concept in order to understand this uh, apolitical claim that, that we tackle in the book. Functionalism, uh, which is also related to uh, technocracy. The second trend of literature is vast amount of, of, of articles and books on anti-politics and bureaucratic multilateralism, the fact that we don't consider only international organizations through their member states, but also as bureaucracy. And of course, this is linked with the, these depoliticization mechanisms that we identify. And the other one, which is uh, interesting because it's not restricted to international organization, is the literature on expertise, knowledge and technicization, which is very much transversal, in fact, and doesn't only uh, tackle international organization. So giving these different traditions, you might say, oh, okay, but what's new if there are so many books and, uh, and articles on, uh, already on the, on the subject? Actually, when we were finishing the book, there, there are actually two other books that just uh, came out. The, a book from uh, Frédéric Méran, political scientist at the University uh, of Montreal, who wrote on the politicization of the European Commission. And his book is entitled The Political Commissioner. And also at the same time in 2021, Jens Stefek wrote a book on international organization as technocratic utopia. We actually had a workshop with him to discuss the similarities uh, uh, on our two books. So even though we have many uh, workshops organized and, and vast amount of literature, I think there is still there is still more to, to, to say uh, about it. And, and, and clearly, uh, if we have to make a second edition, we will have to include way more literature, I guess. Very interesting. So, uh, Lucille, do you want to add something? Yes, just to, to go back to the relevance of the book in the study of international organizations. I think what we addressed in the book is that we propose a systematic analysis of something that is very common in many international organizations. It's a, it's a bit of an elephant in the room, as Marik was just saying, that there was quite a lot of literature that addressed depoliticization, but most often depoliticization was not questioned, especially in the case of the functionalist work, or it was mar marginally addressed. It was not directly the main question that was at the core of, of the different literature that was before the book. And so what we tried to do in this, um, in this manuscript is to bring together different, very different case studies with this conceptual ambition to have an original framework that is applicable in very different type of institutional settings. And so I, I think what makes it relevant for advancing our understanding of IOs is specifically the fact that we identify practices that are very diverse, uh, like delivering technical assistance, using ready-to-use formats, or um, using even delaying tactics, all of that, it's quite different, but we put it in a coherent way in, a, in this uh, effort to have a typology of those practices and logics of depoliticization. And so it's going inside the inner dynamics of IOs, but also questioning the impact of those inner dynamics onto the global problems that international organizations were created to solve. Thank you, Lucy. We'll come back to the practices in a moment. But first, I love it that you start your book with an exclamation that you've heard around international organizations. We don't do politics. Now, it's certainly something I've heard working here. But first, tell us how you're defining politics. What is this paradox that you take as your starting point? Maybe uh, I will start with the paradox. Maybe it's not so much a paradox, in fact, than a tension between, as you say, these apolitical claims. Everyone who's 
been uh, studying or working for an international organization has heard we're not here to do politics. We don't do politics. So we hear that in very different contexts. I talked about my research in the International Labour Organization and Lucille uh, working more uh, in the field of environment, uh, in UNEP, but also in, in, in the UN. So uh, th- there is a tension between these apolitical claims and the fact that they evolve in very political environments, which is why the definition of politics is, of course, so important. And we try to, to, to tackle the issue in the introduction. Let's say without being too technical uh, that uh, we adopt a rather inclusive, uh, rather inclusive view on politics. It's both professional, specialized activities, but also more mundane private practices as long as they have an impact on the daily lives of a broader collectivity, let's say. And as long as these practices, whether they are performed by professional or by ordinary citizen, as long as they involve consideration about the legitimacy of detaining power and making decision, uh, the exercise of authority and, and the delivery of public policy. And of course, in this consideration, you have uh, conflict and debates. And, and very often when you have conflict and debates, it's a signal of politicization and, and the presence of politics, but not exclusively because politics is also about cooperation. And this is maybe where we differ from the dominant literature on politics, because most of the time politics is very much seen through the lenses of, of conflict and opposition and debates. And, and we think that you also have to include more cooperative dynamic. And the other reason we, we had to take on the more inclusive definition of politics is because if you define politics only as we do at the national level, uh, in terms of partisan cleavages, for instance, you will exclude international organization because within international organization, you don't have the same lines of tensions of political parties, for instance. So if you want to, uh, to make politics also fit for the realm of international organization, you need to, to, to be a little bit more uh, inclusive. And, and being inclusive doesn't mean that we think that politics is necessarily everywhere uh, all the time. It varies. Uh, some issues can become political at some point and, and, and be less political at others. So it's not everywhere all the time, but it's more contextual, but being attentive to both professional and, and non-professional actors and, and, and activities. And so whilst we're on definitions, and just so that we all understand, explain to us a bit your notion of depoliticization. So linking with the fact that we have this inclusive view of politics and that we say that not everything is political all the time. What we um, consider as being a depoliticization process is precisely this depoliticization process that is different like, from apolitical. Like when you say uh, that something is apolitical, what you mean is that it's non-political. It doesn't have a political character. When we talk about depoliticization, the D refers to the process of taking away the political character. And that's what we study by um, defining depoliticization as a process in which we minimize, conceal, or even eliminate politics within international organizations. And so it's a process that needs to be contextualized because it's, it's enacted through daily practices, but it also follows institutional logics and individual tactics. And why is it important to look at that? It's because it has political meaning and implication for global governance and internationalization. Because that's how internationalization functions on a daily basis. But that's also how we will frame uh, and we will enact uh, solutions for the global problems uh, that are uh, at play on, on international relations. So now we're on to the practice. 
And in talking about international organizations, you specifically talk about how they perform depoliticization. And you know three ways in which this is done. And the first one is that IOs have, um, discourses have a tendency to reduce political issues to technical ones, especially through using expert knowledge and so on. What have you observed? So this is something that we, we see uh, in, in many organizations where you have um, expertise that is produced by international organizations that tend to simplify very complex social facts or social problems. Our take compared to the literature on expertise and internationalization uh, is to focus on the claim of expertise. Here, what we say is that claiming being an expert in internationalization or international bureaucrat, but also a diplomat, uh, provides a credential that can isolate the actors from politics because the expertise would be the reason why this actor is um, legitimate to intervene on this field. Uh, but by doing so, it creates a, a distance with the politics. And this also leads, in terms of interpreting the, the problems at stake, uh, into a technical interpretation that tends to reduce the complexity, also for practical reasons, and we'll come back to that. And so we build on the like the sociology of quantification, for example, to discuss the way international organizations use models, indexes, numbers, without disclosing the political decisions that are taken in the calculation process. Um, if I take an example of the, of the UN Development Program, um, so UNDP uh, uses now the Human Development Index. When the, uh, the Human Development Index was put in place, the idea was to challenge an understanding of development through the GDP only. But the, this index is still just one number. It's just the addition of three variables, not even ver a very specific ponderation between them. And so having this number at the end, uh, it's still debatable to use those numbers instead of another more complex understanding of what it means to be developed. And so this is the type of, of, uh, of practices that we were able to analyze in the different cases. And I think what's interesting also when we look at the different uh, internationalization is that we don't always have the same mechanism that, that we can see in terms of the link between expertise, technicization and international organization, because it depends on their mandates. For example, the case of UNEP, the UN Environment Programme, its mandate is connected to its, ex its expertise on environmental assessment. So it's quite connected to uh, a form of technical expertise. So it's easier for UNEP to use this type of technicization practice. But if you take, for example, the World Bank, the World Bank would have more the tendency to use econometrics compared to environmental assessment because it's uh, economists that are inside the World Bank. But you have also other types of knowledge, um, like Experience is very used as a knowledge, especially for humanitarian organization. If you take the case of the UNHCR, the UNI Refugee um, High Commissioner um, for Refugees, uh, their experience in cap management was used as a form of claim uh, to be able to depoliticize their role in intervening after a natural disaster. And so here, again, you have different types of knowledge that is uh, used uh, to participate in the process of depoliticization. Your second point is on neutrality. How is neutrality used for depoliticization? And can you give us an example? 
Yes, so first uh, we have to say that neutrality is a very challenging concept. It's it's uh, difficult to define because it's used with regard to very different issues. I mean, neutrality in academia is not necessarily the same as in the public service and definitely also not completely the same in the field of international organization. But in the field of international organization, neutrality has um, historically been and still is a key concept, especially with regard, for instance, to uh, humanitarian intervention and also in peacekeeping. It entails very much this idea of not taking side in hostilities, but also not to engage, more generally speaking, into political or um, ideological controversies. And most importantly, this neutral positioning is uh, seen as a way to secure the, the trust, the confidence of the parties involved in, in a dispute or a conflict, and, and, and therefore to facilitate the intervention of international organizations. So in the book, we we, we, we don't necessarily take on the challenge to assess whether uh, international organizations are, uh, in fact, neutral or not. Uh, what we take seriously is the neutral claims and we adopt a more practice-oriented view on neutrality. So how is neutrality produced? How does it circulate? And most importantly, how does it serve uh, the purpose of depoliticization? And, and here, um, the answer relies in the way what we call neutral formatting, and I will uh, let Lucille give some example, how neutral formatting is used to, to reduce the political space for debate and, and contradiction by relying, for instance, on success and successful and experience-based uh, justification in displacing the political agencies from international organizations to the audience uh, it targets. Uh, and we'll give the example uh, of training. And, and finally, uh, how international organizations are very effective in uh, turning information and facts into actual normative recommendations like best practices. And we see that very much also in the case of breastfeeding. It both relies, of course, on scientific expertise. So it also rely, uh, relates to what Lucille was talking about, about uh, the production of expertise. But by saying what, what is good uh, for a child, for instance, it becomes very, very quickly what uh, people should actually, uh, actually do. Uh, so you always have a very uh, thin frontier between informing but also recommending the, the, the base way to, to go. So, so Lucien, would you like to tell us a bit more about training and how that comes into the picture? Not only how, it's, how neutrality is produced, but about its dissemination, as you've just been talking about, Marek. Yes, uh, so training for, for us was a, a very good example of how international organizations rely on ready-to-use formats that displace the political agency. So let me explain. International organizations, they produce these very accessible tools where they then encourage the reappropriation of those tools by the targeted audience. And by doing this uh, reappropriation to the audience, uh, they reverse ownership. The political agency is not put on the international organization that produce the training, but on the participants that are in charge of taking the training and then applying the information that is turned into a recommendation. If I, if I take a very concrete example, I studied uh, an online training program for peacekeepers uh, that was dedicated to the protection of the environment. The topic was highly political. States disagree on what peacekeepers should be doing on the environment. It was different types of practices. It would imply also um, changes in terms of procurement, uh, what type of, of material uh, peacekeepers should bring with themselves. So this was quite a political topic. By doing this online training, it moves the responsibility uh, of the application of what the training is saying that 
peacekeepers should do on the participants. It's not about the organization. It's not about UNEP or UNITAR, who create, which created the, the, the training, but it displays the political agency towards the participants. And it's really this reverse ownership that is part of the depoliticization process that we studied. So continuing about uh, dissemination, tell us a little bit more about how you see the power of storytelling as part of this depoliticizing procedure. Storytelling is, is, is used more and more within internationalization, especially in the way that internationalization creates undebatable stories. They can base that on success stories. They can base that on lesson learned, for example, where there is no need to discuss it again because we learned the lesson, right? Uh, we don't need to discuss with the past. Uh, and so that's one technique. And the other one is just to call to common sense. It's, uh, uh, it makes sense. It's logical. It's even universal. Uh, who could say no to ending poverty? to put an end to hunger. So for sure, this makes it uh, as a very shared um, success story or storytelling uh, that internationalization use on a daily basis, but that actually tend to close down the debate because you can agree on saying, okay, we should end poverty, but the way we will end it, that's very political. And here, if, you, if, we, if we follow the storytelling, it's a, it's a way that uh, internationalization managed to bypass a political division by bringing this very um, shared common sense uh, stories, but at the same time, at the expense of, of an important debate that we should have on how we would address those problems. So you've talked about technicization, we've talked about neutrality, and the third point you bring up is about time. So how is time used as a, as a means to depoliticize issues, and, and in what ways have you seen this used? So as you, as you mentioned, this is the third type of practice that we identify in, in the book, uh, the time-related depoliticization practices. And um, we build on the growing interest on time and temporality in international relations, to think about time as a resource. So we, we think about time in the way that it can be played with or even instrumentalized uh, because internationalization, or within internationalization, diplomats and staff, they can use time to postpone decision-making, to decrease political momentum, to uh, lose political interest to the point that we can even forget past political debates. And, and Marie will illustrate with uh, a few examples. Yes, we've illustrated this chapter through uh, three cases, actually, which uh, all the three entail uh, the, the, the different steps of the process of uh, time-related depoliticization. Uh, so we've talked about the UN Security Council reform, the ILO reform of the governing body, and finally the, the, the reform of the voting system. So they, they may seem very different uh, at first sight, but in fact, they are all related to uh, problems and challenges of representativeness. And in those three cases, in, um, although in, in quite different um, historical periods, because for the ILO, we're talking already of a process starting in the 1920s. For the UN Security Council uh, reform, it's more in the 1960s. For the IMF, it becomes 
very salient, more in the 1990s. But in in all the three cases, uh, we observe the same tactics of delaying the time of the decision making, diluting the issues which are at stake, which reinforce uh, the, the the delaying tactics by saying, "Oh yes, of course, there is uh, the problem of the veto, but there is also a problem of uh, the the voting power and the question of geographic representation." And so it adds more problem, and then the, the question is complexified, and then it it delays, it postpones the, the time of of the decision making. And then you also have the fact that um, as time goes by, and and the fact that these issues are presented as urgent issues, important for the legitimacy of the institution, the fact that you repeat that this is urgent, it routinizes in a way the emergency. Uh, we had that very much after the 12, 2008 crisis with this idea that we had to reform urgently international financial institutions. It was very urgent at the time, but the question is still um, is still open. And finally, and this is a very much the case for the international labor labor organization, it comes to a time where, through which as time goes by, members start even to forget about the past uh, debates. And and, and, and then the, the political momentum of the reform is completely lost because if people don't even remember the the accumulation of, of, of debates, tiny reforms uh, which were taken, then it, it becomes more and more difficult to reopen these, uh, these debates. So with all these practices, you know, why and to what end? Um, You say, and I quote from your book, that international organizations justify their existence and intervention by defining their action as a concrete answer to specific needs while following the constraints of their mandate and institutional designs. And you choose a historical example of the ILO to illustrate this point about taking a functional, pragmatic approach. Can you just explain a little bit more about that? Yes. So um, actually, maybe we should remind that functionalism and pragmatism are different paradigms. Uh, but, and this is an argument that we, uh, proposition that we make in the book, they share the same focus on needs and, um, and action. So in that, in that way, they are very relevant to, to articulate. And um, it was actually David Mitrani who said in the 1940s that the International Labour Organization was the typical functionalist uh, organization. The ILO was uh, created in 1919, sorry, so just after the First World War, and its specific feature, and uh, this is uh, the reason also why the ILO uh, is a little bit famous, at least in the cycle uh, of international organizations, uh, specialists and practitioners, is because it is a tripartite organization composed of uh, workers, employers, and governments. And this structure is particularly emblematic of the functionalist way of thinking. It was thought to be more effective because uh, the idea was in order to really produce international uh, labor standards that would be effective, that would be that will be understood and, and, and really applied by the workers and the and the enterprises, you needed to have them around the table to do the negotiations. So starting with this uh, representative structure, the ILO was anchored in a way in this very functionalist, pragmatic uh, way of thinking. And it continues, for instance, when the ILO was, the ILO was created at the same time than the, the, the League of Nations. And there were very um, common rhetoric about the fact that the ILO and the League of Nations were completely different because the ILO was not focusing on political issues. That was the business of the League of Nations and the ILO was focusing on technical issues. And many have said that it was the reason 
the ILO had survived to the Second World War. And it continues like that. Um, for instance, uh, the ILO was very pioneer in developing uh, Turing, uh, training centers. We've talked about this uh, this practice. It, it created the International Training Center in Turin in 1960s. So a very much need-based approach, which is uh, emblematic of this functional way of thinking. It's actually Jens Stefek also and Leonie Holthaus in an article in the European Journal of International Relations. They talk not about functionalism, but they talk about this kind of welfare internationalism that is embodied by international organizations like the ILO, those who put forward uh, really the, the social and economic needs of the people rather than more political considerations. That sounds very attractive, doesn't it, really? This idea of uh, being depoliticized to facilitate this approval from governments in order to be operational. Isn't it an advantage or do you see consequences to following this route? For sure, it's it's quite an attractive route and it's quite practical. Uh, and and we show that in the book, it, most often it's also the only way for internationalization to actually be able to do what they were supposed to do. Um, and so for many internationalization staff, they do play the apolitical card to receive the authorization to intervene and to uh, achieve the mandate. And in that sense, it's also our neutrality is presented as a way of action. It's a way to be able to act. It's by being neutral. And this pragmatic decision to play on, on the ap apolitical claims, we, we've seen that in many different cases. I, I can maybe mention one, the case of the MSEC initiative, the Environmental Security Initiative, that intervened in Central Asia at the end of the Cold War. Here, it was clear, because it was so politicized at the end of the Cold War, that the organization needed to be seen as uh, completely uh, impartial and completely not involved in the politics of what it was constructing the world after the, the Cold War. And so they played the, the focus on environmental rehabilitation, on environmental cooperation to be able to intervene. But one of the consequences of using this card is that it constrains the actors to maintain the status quo. And you cannot disrupt the existing power relationship because you give them tacit approval. Uh, and it can't be, uh, you, you can't have radical changes when you have to apply this pragmatic way of doing uh, international relations. And another uh, consequence that I, I would like to emphasize is how it tends to stigmatize politics. Because it's, it's seen as if politics is necessarily bad for cooperation. And that's something uh, I think it's important also to pinpoint when you see, yes, it's practical, but it also has unintended consequences. If I may uh, add also something on these consequences, it's also in terms of the responsibility avoidance that it uh, leads to. I, uh, international organization have become specialists in, in, in blame shifting and, um, and, 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 and really trying to avoid putting themselves in politically difficult positions. We explore that actually in the last analytical chapters on, uh, on logics, the, the search for different scapegoats. So it can be either the governments, which are, um, 
stigmatized as the main uh, as the main responsible the inefficiency or it can be the individuals for instance when there are scandals about sexual violence uh, in peacekeeping operations the, uh, the, the UN uh, focuses on those individuals with bad behaviors but not necessarily questioning uh, the more uh, the, the structures uh, or organizational culture that make uh, those kind of violations possible or also in the case of genocide when the UN for instance recognizes a general uh, responsibility but in the end and, uh, making the guilt uh, disappear because if everyone is responsible, who is really responsible? And I think this was really the, the added value of the book by uh, Michael Barnett, uh, Eyewitness to Genocide, where he really tries to assess this differ differentiated responsibility of the different parts of the UN, going from the UN Security Council to the, the role of France or, or to the role of the Secretary General to try to identify more who is responsible and try to to overcome this discourse on we are not responsible because we don't do politics. I must admit it was um, quite a difficult section of your book to read. It felt a little bit uncomfortable. Now you also give an interesting example of the way international organizations compete for legitimacy and sometimes a monopoly of the legitimacy in writing about a conflict that happened um, between the ILO and ISO. What is this link between depoliticization and legitimacy? If I take the example of the ILO and ISO, and here I'm very much uh, indebted to the work of uh, Colin Ruvet and Camille Gagné, who are both, both experts on the ISO, it goes back to the, the, the confrontation that arose uh, at the beginning of the 1990s because the ISO, the ISO, sorry, started to produce standards on issues like health and, and, and safety at work, corporate social responsibilities, human resources, which were considered as a monopoly of the uh, of the ILO. And the reason for conflict was not just, uh, even if it was a reason, but was not just uh, the ILO defending its monopoly and relevance. It was also because actually they, they, they defend two different political visions of labor relations and, and democracy. And, and so what I find interesting is the way they have tried to depoliticize, to enter into these very radical different views on, on democracy and labor relations, to focus on the area where they could potentially work together. But in the end, this depoliticization has failed because confrontation came back, especially in 2017, and the, the two organizations decided to, to stop collaborating because the ISO would not recognize the uh, superiority of the international labor standards produced by the ILO. So which shows that sometimes uh, depoliticization can actually not be so successful in managing conflict among uh, organizations. And if I may jump in on this link between legitimacy and, and depoliticization, um, what, what we try to show in, in, in this chapter is to show that there is a, a mutual um, reinforcement of, of both processes. What do I mean by that is that uh, depoliticization helps organizations to gain legitimacy. And, and that has been shown by, uh, by other scholars like Annabelle Littes-Monet uh, on, on the case of the UNESCO, for example, how the depoliticization processes is a way for internationalization to gain legitimacy, especially on topics that they were not on their mandate or on their agenda at first. Uh, it's, a, it's a way to be able to justify uh, an intervention that is a bit of a mission creep. Uh, it's an expansion of their mandate. But once the legitimacy over a field of action is there, once there is even a monopoly 
that reinforces depoliticization because it legitimizes uh, who has the right uh, voice on the matter. It, it means that different or alternative voices are less heard or less legitimated. And one example is the way how the, the monopoly of the UN Climate Convention and its famous cops on, on climate change, um, they have the monopoly on the climate change discussion. And this has been used as a reason why other international organizations should not be talk, talking and discussing climate change. And that has been used, for example, by, uh, by some delegates, uh, member states delegates at the UN Security Council saying the Security Council should not be talking about climate change because climate change is to be discussed within the climate convention. And you see here how the monopoly of the legitimacy also reinforced depoliticization because it closed the space for political debates. So your book is a very careful analysis and very well-constructed argument throughout. But what I also find interesting was is the way that you show how depoliticization is also contested within international organizations. And for example, uh, you mentioned the strike in the 1970s of the FAO staff who were protesting about the way the organization was promoting the Green Revolution. And whilst in their opinion, they were saying that the FAO was masquerading as a neutral technical forum. Would you tell us more about this other side of the coin and how depoliticization is also resisted? The, the case of the FAO, this, this is from the work of Birgit Müller and Nora McKeon. Uh, so they both work on the FAO. And what they've, they've shown is that um, the FAO managed to render conflicting political and economic interests technical making it as if political interests were not uh, a political problem, but it was technical. And they, the FAO organized um, the forums that were supposed to be inclusive in terms of, of participants and in terms of, of the discussion. But at the end, it was still promoting the Green Revolution biotechnologies. That was its main line of action. And so this depoliticization process was very criticized from the inside. Not all staff agreed on that. And that's how they went on strike. And I think this is a good example of the limits of depoliticization. Depoliticization can be counterproductive, it can create even more space for politics, and it can be resisted as well within international organizations, but also from the outside. And I think what uh, this tension, like the almost the failure or the resistance against depoliticization, shows that depoliticization and politicization can happen simultaneously uh, within international organizations. We should not take them as uh, in opposition. And the book that Frédéric Mélan wrote uh, on the political commissioners that was mentioned earlier, in his book, he shows that the political work within internationalization, he shows how some actors actively seek to bring more politics. And this research is completely complementary of our book because all of that, it's about agency. It's about how you're functioning. It's about how you're politics. So depoliticization and politicization happens at the same time, but there are different mechanisms that we, we should study independently and then together. And if I may add also on the cases that I uh, was talking about on representativeness, I think representativeness is also a good example where depoliticization uh, can become counterproductive because um, the, the fact that you have so many delaying tactics and, and dilution of issues, it can create less, some kind of lassitude of institutional fatigue, but it can also create frustration, which can also generate new claims, actually, and, and resist 
resistance to these uh, attempts to not talk about that anymore. If, if you look at the at the ILO, it's no coincidence that uh, in the 1990s uh, you have the first director general coming also from the southern uh, country. It was uh, Juan Somavia from Chile, and a few weeks ago a new director general from Togo. I think Gilbert uh, Humbo was elected. So, and it was the first time that uh, you have a, a director general coming from the uh, so-called African group. So, I, I think it shows that even though there are attempts to depoliticize, you still have um, resistance to, 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 to that. And, and, and members or certain members uh, don't want a certain issue to be, be buried. So for people who work in the international organizations, the staff, the diplomats, what do you hope they take from your book? The whole project of the book will not have been able to be conducted without uh, the diplomats, the staff, uh, because it's based on the experience that they agreed to share with us in interviews. It's based on the fact that they opened the door so that academics were able to go inside internationalization to take the time and the distance maybe to identify the strengths and tendencies that go well beyond what individuals can anticipate. We do not imply that people, IO staff or diplomats, wake up every morning and they say, yeah, let's depoliticize the world today. Uh, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. And what we hope is that, that we help make sense of, of some of the individual dilemmas uh, that staff and diplomats can face and also shed light on the unintended consequences because they, we do need to reflect on those consequences, especially in, in the current context of a legitimacy crisis of internationalization. We need to think of, we think the role of technocracy, like the, the functionalist project uh, is still uh, very much in the mind of lots of people within internationalization and thinking that um, technocracy is a tool for peace that needs to be challenged because what we see in, in, this, in, in the different cases that we, we studied is that bypassing politics to facilitate cooperation might just actually backlash on the long run. And so that's why also uh, research and uh, like academics and, and practitioners should be able to uh, be in dialogue to discuss those type of issues. And so finally, what do you think are the implications for multilateralism today? Well, I think Lucille has used uh, an interesting word. She, she talked about uh, backlash. And, uh, and I think that we are living maybe critical times also for the legitimacy of international organizations. International organizations are maybe not so popular as uh, they might think. They might uh, appear sometimes away from ordinary citizens, although their mandate is precisely about the needs, as we said, uh, of, of, the, of the ordinary citizens. I think there are more uh, and more critical about the technocratic and not in a good way, the technocratic nature about this uh, international um, organization. So I think that maybe our book opens also new venues for research in order to really tackle the, the, the question of to what extent can international organization be more democratic, maybe more transparent. And the key question is to what extent is depoliticization more or less linked to these uh, democratization processes. You will have some people saying depoliticization is uh, anti-democratic. We don't say that. We think that sometimes depoliticization might be very useful uh, and in a very democratic way, but not always. And, and this is why we think that we should maybe investigate more this, this aspect because it's clearly linked to the legitimacy crisis of, of multilateral um, organizations today. Uh, Lucine, fin final thoughts. 
the fact that the book is structured in such a way that we could read each chapter individually and uh, and show that so, some readers will uh, focus on specific dimension, but we would really like to encourage uh, the readers to take the opportunity to read the old book because um, it's really useful to capture the, the coherence of the argument, but also all those nuances that we wanted to, um, to put forward in the study of international organization and, and global governance. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.